Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean, Stuart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Yeah, what a week. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, a lot to unpack. And uh, as we do occasionally on the roundtable, we're going to bring a special guest on the show. It's part of our pledge to you, our listening audience, to provide you with some unique analysis and insights that you're only going to get at the Hub. We're extremely fortunate to have on the program for a roundtable discussion, Ian Brody, who's Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary and Director of Studies at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, uh, a well-known think tank uh, focused on foreign policy issues. Most important for us in our discussion today, uh, he previously served as the Chief of Staff to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, so someone who really knows how the machinery and mechanics of government works, how you connect intelligence up into the Privy Council office, into the Prime Minister's office, so who better to talk about a week when all those issues were front and center in the news. Ian Brody, welcome to the Roundtable. Thanks for having me. Ian, the purpose of having you on the show today is to tap your expertise about some of the important kind of processes and mechanics of information sharing within Privy Council and PMO, because boy, has that been the center of a lot of the drama this week over reporting in the Globe and Mail around uh, MP Michael Chong and the extent to which uh, the government knew that he was the subject of a Chinese uh, interference intimidation uh, campaign. At the root of all this, Ian, and so much of the conversation in the last uh, six days has been uh, an assertion, a, a kind of claim by the government about how this information didn't get out of CSIS. We later learned in the week that it did. There's still a lot of gray space though here, Ian. So maybe you could help us understand um, where we are right now, what's been asserted, and whether you think those assertions are in fact valid and we in a sense have an understanding of what happened. Sure, well, Roger, let me just take a step back and let's remember here. The Canadian Security Intelligence Service is in the business of developing information about foreign and domestic threats of the security nature here in Canada, not for its own entertainment and not to you know produce reports that pad out its library. It has some specialized tools and it gathers information and shares it broadly within government. So the story the Prime Minister had on Wednesday that uh, CSIS found out that uh, Chinese diplomats were involved in trying to intimidate uh, the family of a Canadian MP, uh, family living in China, over a vote that had taken place in the House of Commons, that that developed within CSIS and then was never shared broadly. That was just not a plausible answer. Uh, I didn't. I, I found it almost impossible to believe the Prime Minister at the time and everyone else I know in the business, uh, I think, shared the same view. Of course, that information was shared 
broadly with other security and intelligence agencies within Canada that need to know this sort of information. And of course, was shared with the security and intelligence division within the Privy Council office, which is the prime minister's department, and then up to the national security advisor. That I think was, the prime minister went out and said something different on Wednesday. I don't think that was a, a plausible uh, 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 claim on his part. And apparently the national security advisor phoned Mr. Chong yesterday to tell him uh, otherwise. I think the question then is what we don't know at the moment, and what I assume they are tearing the Privy Council office apart this weekend uh, during the Liberal Convention to find out, came into the Privy Council office and then what? Keep in mind, you're getting probably a single sheet of paper, maybe two sheets of paper here, it lands on an analyst desk and says, you know, there's an effort at squeezing a parliamentary decision here by squeezing the overseas family of an MP. There is no analyst I know in the government of Canada who's going to sit on that and not say this needs to be brought to the attention of political officials right away. Not tomorrow, not next week. This needs to be handled today. Um, so I think what we need to know is uh, this almost certainly made its way into the Privy into, from the Privy Council office into the Prime Minister's political staff. And then what? The Prime Minister's Chief of Staff Senate Committee a couple of weeks ago, whenever this information comes in, we forward it to the Prime Minister right away. The Prime Minister said he found out about this on Monday. I think we're going to have to stitch together the path of that information through PCO, uh, certainly by Monday at the very latest here, to get an idea of who knew what when. Then the second question is, what did they do with that information? Uh, there are many reasons why you might want to move carefully with this information, in particular not to make Mr. Chong's family's life more difficult in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a very difficult situation there. Canada has diplomats on the ground. So we do have a few tools, but not, you know, this is not a purely domestic situation here in Canada where the Canadian police might have um, uh, some ability to protect somebody. It's a little more difficult when you're dealing overseas here. But I think we now need to know what did they do about this? Uh, did they take any steps at all? It seems that they did not tell Mr. Chong specifically what was going on. Uh, with his family? Did they take any steps with the consulate in Hong Kong to assure themselves that the Mr. Chong's relatives were okay? And then I think the third question is, we know uh, from media reports that CSIS has had concerns about other parliamentarians here, uh, other parliamentarians that they thought were under um, uh, influence of, uh, of Chinese interests in Canada, uh, other, presumably other parliamentarians with family in China that might have been exposed to the same kind of problems that we now know Mr. Chong's family was targeted for. There's, I think, a focus yesterday and maybe this week on the Chong family's personal story here, which is terrible, uh, terrible. I don't want to downplay that. Uh, but the Minister of Foreign Affairs yesterday was speaking about this as if we had to weigh Mr. Chong's family concerns with the broader national security interest. That, that was an almost nonsensical statement. I mean, this is a broad national security concern for the government of Canada, no matter who the party is that's in power, if there's uh, foreign interference efforts to uh, change decisions being made in the Parliament of Canada through those sorts of means, that's not an issue of just Mr. Chong and Mr. Chong's family. With the greatest respect to Mr. Chong, this is an issue for the national security interest as a whole. Yeah, a ton of insight there, Ian. I'm so grateful to have you on the program to share um, both your perspective, having spent time in the prime minister's office uh, at the most senior level. Uh, and then, as Roger had said at the outset, um, both as a, a well-regarded political scientist and someone who's done a lot of work at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Let me take up some of the points you raised. Uh, and in particular, um, the, the notion that CSIS 
collects this information, uh, this intelligence, and then uh, starts to move it up the chain. You know, my experience in Ottawa, not quite at the same level as you, but uh, both in the prime minister's office and, and ministerial offices, is that there is a, a tendency towards what you might call CYA. And it's just implausible to me um, that a, a mid-level or even a senior official inside CSIS or other parts of the intelligence community uh, wouldn't have had something like this land on their desk and think, I need to tell someone um, because I don't ultimately want to be the one exercising discretion about how this information is ultimately shared within the system, including up to whether it goes to the prime minister or the minister of public safety or other uh, senior members of the political arm of the government. And so in that vein, um, you know, I suppose, as you say, we'll wait to hear whether whether it it indeed did um, go to the prime minister. But as the chief of staff, like how frequently would you have had formal or informal meetings or conversations with the national security advisor about intelligence or other national security analysis uh, in your capacity as the chief of staff uh, to the prime minister of Canada? Well, I would say uh, in most weeks I talk to either the National Security Advisor or the Clerk of the Privy Council, who National Security Advisor's boss, uh, several times a day, um, uh, most days of the week, including the weekends. I would have intelligence reporting two or three times uh, 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 a week uh, forwarded to me. Uh, anything that dealt with uh, a direct Canadian political interest would come up and then reported to the Prime Minister not necessarily two or three times a week, but certainly weekly at that point. The system became more formal after I left. I'm aware of that uh, as a result of, I mean, keep in mind, Sean, you were there a bit later, but um, the, the war in Afghanistan was going at the sort of the height of its uh, terrible uh, toll on Canadian troops and on Afghan civilians when I was chief of staff. So international security reporting was a, a daily part of of operations in the prime minister's office. Uh, there was something going on in Afghanistan every day. We were getting intelligence reports about that and about other similar issues going on around the world. So there was nothing, you know, stop the press is extraordinary about this. This went on uh, all the time. I had a uh, intelligence liaison uh, into the international assessment secretary to PCO, who, who was my liaison to the intelligence uh, services. I had a liaison to the Canadian security establishment, uh, communication security establishment as well. So I thought it was well served by by the closeness of that uh, of that uh, relationship, and I, I I can't underline enough how much things that dealt with people in the political process would come up to the top, uh, you know, very quickly uh, as as soon as things could move. But I also want to say I don't want to give the impression this was discretionary on the part of you know. There's questions: Why didn't the director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service tell so and so? That's not the way the system works. There isn't personal discretion. Since the 9-11 attacks, the Americans did lots of reviews and those of what happened in the lead up to the 9-11 attacks. The common theme of those reviews was you have to share intelligence more broadly and more easily between intelligence agencies. And I think every country in the Western Alliance went through the same sort of process at that point. So the idea that you know, somebody sits there and says, well, who should I tell about this? My goodness, I have to make a decision about, does this go to foreign affairs or should this just go to the RCP? It doesn't work that way. There are automatic distribution lists for all of this. There's points of contact and processes for making sure this information gets passed along. So I don't want to give the impression, I think some of the journalistic reporting this week has given the impression that there's 
you know, some person there who's a single point of failure in the process. In my experience, that's not how the system works. The system uh, shares by default broadly within the government. There are established points for doing this. And uh, the exceptions are when somebody says, let's, let's not share this. And I, I don't think that was the case in this situation. Ian, I'm just curious, um, looking forward in a, a controversy or a scandal or whatever one you want to call it like this, I was really surprised on Wednesday when the prime minister came out and said, don't worry, we looked into it. It's all CSIS's fault. Um, they didn't put this up the chain. And I kind of watched that and said, he's saying it so surely that they must know something that we don't know. They must have found some document. They must have found someone who was culpable. And then, of course, the next day we found out that it did go up to Privy Council and to other ministries. And it's kind of a microcosm of this scandal more broadly, which is that it does seem like the PMO is at an information uh, deficit compared to the people who are leaking and even sometimes the journalists reporting on this. Um, I just wonder, how would you go about responding to that? What do you do if you're the chief of staff or if you're the prime minister? How do you get a handle on a, a controversy like this? Well, uh, look, t getting information uh, out of uh, the public service broadly, you need to do your job at the top. It can sometimes be a challenge, but I take a slightly different view of this particular set of, of, of challenges here, Stuart. Uh, I think what we have is a group of people who have been following Chinese political interference issues on behalf of CSIS and possibly other agencies for, for quite some time. They've been sending up red flags about it to everybody who they thought should know about it. And the response has been implicitly or explicitly, the government has sent the message, we're not really that worried about this. Uh, media reports that CSIS raised questions about some of their candidates who are running for the Liberal Party in general elections and were told we're not really interested in your view about our, our candidates. Uh, I think there's a, a deeper problem here that's not just the normal reluctance of civil servants to share everything they know with the political staff or with the political leadership, or, you know, it's a big funnel and only so much information gets to the prime minister's desk. I'm starting to see the pattern here is that this government has sent the message they're just not that interested uh, in hearing reports or following up on reports about Chinese political interference in the Canadian political system. And I guess that's what, if this is just a, you know, a yes minister type uh, uh, a breakdown of the public service, that's uh, one thing that can be resolved. I think the government's trying to slap that frame around it uh, now post facto. But I think, in fact, there's every bit of evidence here that there's a much more serious problem inside the government. And the problem is that at the top, there's people who just aren't really that worried about this. Some key takeaways here, Ian, so helpful, you know, that, you know, CSIS is not a library. It doesn't, you know, go out and commission studies and put them on shelves and then take them off the shelves and give them to people that there are these, you know, 17 points or so within the government that CSIS is regularly distributing that information to. And in this case, it sounds like three of those key points at least uh, had this information go to them. Let's just engage in a little bit of conjecture here. The kind of assertion as we end the week is that from the government tacitly is that this information somehow stopped, that it went into some key ministries, we think foreign affairs, public safety, the Privy Council office, and then something happened. It stopped. Um, where would it have gone? Like when it goes in, how does it go in? And then what's your just take, your reading on this, this idea somehow that it, oh no, it's sorry guys, we, we kind of screwed up, um, won't happen again. We've instructed officials to ensure that this information comes up through the system to the highest level, rest be assured, 
Canadians, ladies and gentlemen, nothing to see. Move on here. We've got this under control. Uh, well, look, uh, this is classified national security information. In this case, I suspect uh, secret information at the classified and secret level. So circulated through special systems, not through the normal uh, e email channels. Uh, but, you know, it's true the government collects uh, both through its own agencies and exchange with our allies an enormous amount of intelligence uh, every day. What makes this special is the political nature of it. The report says an MP with family in China, we believe that the family in China is being targeted, and we gather from the media reports uh, some identification of the Canadian, of the, excuse me, the Chinese uh, diplomat in Canada who was involved in trying to coordinate these efforts. Um, in my experience, the situation, the system changed after I left, but in my experience, this would have come up from uh, the assessments staff uh, in PCO, uh, uh, either to me directly or up to the national security advisor, and then a note coming up to me, we should discuss this immediately. Uh, uh, you know, from time to time, the governor of Canada finds out about, you know, MPs of all sorts of, you know, challenges that go on, uh, comes up with a note, you know, we should discuss this right away. It, it, it's not that, in a sense, this is an outrageous situation, but not that uh, strange. It's not like there's a novel situation, the first time an MP uh, has come up in some reporting or something, and what do we do with it now? Uh, you've got to get this up to people who can handle it on a political level. Understand that, of course, there's a professional security side to this as well that has to be staffed out by professionals. But, you know, particularly in this case, Sean said, uh, put his finger on it, uh, there's a threat to an MP's family overseas. You don't know when that's going to happen. You don't know if it's true or not, but you don't know when that might happen. And God forbid you're the guy who said, yeah, I was sitting on that when something terrible happens to an MP's family and there's an inquiry to find out who knew what when and didn't do anything about it. Um, we don't know what's happened in this situation uh, to Mr. Chong's family. Uh, it seems the government has not been able to quite verify what's going on uh, um, uh, at the moment. I hope we find out over the weekend. We have diplomats overseas for that purpose uh, to find out here. But I, did, I just it goes against uh, every grain of reporting here to say, here's a report that deals with an MP and MP's family that's at physical risk of intimidation overseas. Let's just sit on it and not tell people uh, who might need to know about this uh, that we've acquired this sort of information. I find that al almost impossible to believe. Hmm. Just a quick follow on there. You said it goes through a separate computer system. So would it conceivably be possible for them to go back? Uh, I know this is a lot of technical detail here. You may not, the system may have changed, but I'm just curious if this, is this the kind of thing where there would be a record of who this was shared with? Um, you know, if, if if it was briefed up and out into these mainline ministries, who in those ministries would have had access to it? Is that something that is tracked and is readily available and potentially creates an audit trail now that uh, they can, as you say, spend, spend the weekend uh, digging through? No question about it. And I'll tell you why I know that. Uh, towards the end of my time as chief of staff, there was an accusation that I had myself leaked uh, very sensitive diplomatic reporting about the ongoing election, what was then the ongoing election in the United States to a reporter in the United States. It was not true, but there was an accusation to that effect. Uh, I, 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 I didn't do that. Uh, but there was an investigation through PCO to trace from the original reporting took place at the consulate in Chicago. Where did that report go? Who received it? And within days, 
uh, to become clear who had received it in the in the prime minister's office. One of my uh, staff, one of the prime minister's staff members, they printed it out and handed it to me uh, on on paper, and then I did, you know, the, 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 uh, destroyed it in a burn box. Uh, those facts were clear within days. Uh, this is a report that started on Monday with uh, media reporting uh, at the beginning of this week. I'd be amazed if we don't know by next Monday where this document went, who had it, who had it when, and where they sent it on to. And will they tell us, Ian? <laughs> well, I mean, now the Prime Minister's been out and has said, let's assume based on information he had at the time, that's what he said, uh, that this didn't leave uh, CSIS, and now we think that might be not correct. There's a question here of whether he misled Parliament, and there's the question, continued question of uh, whether justice was done for, uh, whether appropriate steps were taken to protect Mr. Chong's family. I think at this point, there's no choice but to put all of this out. And to go back to the bigger question here, you know, we started this several weeks ago, uh, the need for some kind of public inquiry, public investigation, public accounting of what's going on here is more pressing than it was uh, a week ago today. Sean, uh, let's go around the horn. This is fascinating. Yeah, I want to take up um, something you said earlier, and, and that's uh, with respect to the, the prime minister's message today, uh, Friday, May 5th, that when asked to explain the, um, the a clear divide between his message on Wednesday and what the National Security Advisor told uh, MP Michael Chong uh, yesterday, he said, quote, I shared the best information I had. Uh, you know, talk a bit about the responsibility as a chief of staff or as a prime ministerial aide when it comes to the kind of seriousness of the job, Ian. You know, I, I just to just to say as an aside, I cannot imagine a situation, particularly on an issue this important, where if I didn't have 100 percent certainty in my own mind about something, I would not be sending the prime minister of Canada out. Um, with information that, as you say, on the face of it seemed implausible and within 24 hours was proven to be implausible. Like, just talk a bit about advising a prime minister in general and on something this serious about the kind of precision um, that has to be involved in the information that's shared with the prime minister and, and maybe try to empathize. What do you think explains the fact that the PM was out with something um, that within 24 hours he needed to essentially walk back. Well, Sean, you and I have been around this and you've seen it uh, with other uh, political leaders. It's frustrating sometimes the political leaders go out and say very conditional or seemingly mealy-mouthed things about what's gone on in the past is because they don't want to be caught saying something that's later proven to be not true. And so if you have to go out, there's you know question periods at 2.15 or you've got a press conference at three o'clock or whatever, you know, uh, the schedule doesn't always wait for you to have full information before you have to go in public. And so uh, every political office has holding lines that are available to, you know, put somebody out, we've got to say something, uh, but we don't have the full fact, full set of facts here yet. That happens and I'm sympathetic to that. You and I have been on the pulling end of trying to get uh, facts out so we can send a prime minister out to say something definitive. It's 2.15, we don't have it yet. Well, we're going to have to kind of, rough our way through question period today because we don't have the full story. That that happens. And every time I see a politician trying to, you know, you say, well, they're dancing around the question. Yes, I'm thinking behind them is the political staffer on the phone to somebody saying, I need to know what the hell happened because <laughs> the media is not going away. We have to have some answers. And of course, it can take time. So I was sympathetic to that. It was the Prime Minister's choice to go out on Wednesday and say, 
We know that this didn't leave Cesus, and Cesus made the decision not to share it. I don't know what led him to believe that. I'm sure somebody told him to go out and say that, but that's part of the danger of going out with that, you know, half remark here. Uh, he could have been more careful about what he said on Wednesday and allowed the situation to develop. Uh, look, uh, the Parsons National Supervisor phoned Mr. Chong yesterday to give him an update, but it's not like she's been out either with the full story yet. I assume because they're still trying to find out what what happened. Uh, but I would think that by question period on Monday, if we don't have a full accounting of what's going on here um, with uh, everybody sign off on what the facts were and everybody inside this process from ceases through to the National Security Advisor's Office and on up to the Prime Minister's Office agreed on one set of facts of what happened two years ago, given that this all went through uh, you know, a, 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 a communication system that had, you know, receipts and uh, and transfer points recorded at the time, then we're into a very difficult, I mean, you know, the poster should be furious if he can't go out on Monday and give us a definitive accounting of what happened here. Yes. Yeah. Ian, can I just pick that up? Because as a reporter, I'm always partial to explanations that sound more like the thick of it than anything, you know, kind of insidious or conspiratorial. And right. I, I was kind of, thinking about this, I was talking to my wife last night, and we were just remembering what was happening two years ago when this um, document came across people's desks. And this was when, you know, Afghanistan was happening. They were There was some turmoil with the National Security Advisor, and they were also preparing for an election that was upcoming. So I bet a lot of the staff that they needed probably weren't even around uh, at that time. So the government's not going to say that. They're not going to use that as an excuse, of course. But I wonder, do you have some kind of sympathy in that situation? Or do you think, no, you just have to do your job and that's how it works? I must admit, Stuart, if it was you know normal reporting about something that was going on overseas and the prime minister had been caught out in a press comment about the you know, situation in Syria or a situation in Africa or Latin America somewhere and you said something wrong, you correct it later, that, that happens. What makes this different is... Uh, the note in the report that this dealt with a member of parliament uh, and that someone's family was at risk overseas because of a democratic political process. On that front, I'm considerably less uh, uh, sympathetic here. Uh, that should have raised alerts. I'm sure it did raise alerts within CSIS. I'm sure it raised alerts with whoever was on duty in the Privy Council office that day. And I think the question we now need to know is what, 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 what happened next? I, I find it was impossible to believe that somebody in PCO got this through there, you know, got this in their virtual in basket and said, well, I'm just going to sit on this until the election's over. Ian, let's talk a little bit about where, again, we find ourselves uh, Friday evening as we record this, the 5th of May. Um, the individual referenced in the Global Mail story, the Chinese consular official, I mean, let's call him what he is. He's an intelligence operator in Canada working on behalf of the PRC, employed by the PRC. He's still here. Um, he's been named. And we had um, Melanie Jolie come out in committee uh, this week and late in the week and infer that there were a series of interests. Uh, I think economic interests were number one on her list as to why the government was taking its time and moving in, in her language, in a kind of judicious and methodological way to consider what their response would be. I'm just curious as to your re reaction to that. You think a lot about security issues, about what Canada's national interests are. It just strikes me that this really surely is the paramount interest to deter and to make an example 
of a uh, malignant state actor to show other state actors that if they come into Canada and try to behave in this way, that there are immediate consequences, that we will act to stop them. Um, we're now looking at running up the clock, Ian, on a week here since all this has become public. And this person's still working out of the Toronto consular office, literally three blocks from where I'm recording this podcast. Yeah, no, look, this this part is the hardest part to understand. Uh, I understand there might be people at risk in, in uh, China. We have good reason to understand after Ms. Meng Wanzhou was uh, arrested pursuant to an American uh, extradition request that the Chinese seized, kidnapped two Canadian citizens and held them for more than a thousand days uh, in order to get leverage over the Canadian government in the regard of, of, uh, of Meng Wanzhou. So I understand why the government is worried about this. Uh, on the other side here, and so you also want to take a couple of days here to uh, sort of batten down the hatches and make sure everybody is safe in China to get people out of China, uh, if necessary, uh, to make some preparations at the embassy. Well, I understand that. On the other hand, this story emerged on Monday. It's now Friday. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand what's taking so long. We have, in effect, sent the message here already that we're more worried of the uh, Chinese retaliation than we are uh, worried about interference in our political process. And that this has been going on for two years, and we're going to take our sweet time to think of this through. Um, I, I, I find that almost incomprehensible. Uh, uh, Parliament was sitting this week, cabinet presumably met this week, cabinet committees met this week, the prime minister was around, all the ministers are around because of the liberal convention this week. Uh, you get people around the table, you make a decision, and then you move on it. And if you want to give 24 hours for a uh, decision, you know, to make some precautions before you pull the trigger on a decision, I'm sympathetic to that. This is now Friday. This is this is very difficult to explain uh, through any kind of protection of the national security interest here. Yeah, let me just take that up. One of the things that we've been talking about internally at the hub um, uh, is this particular question. And uh, did something like this, I mean, obviously not these particular circumstances, um, but as chief of staff uh, to the prime minister, Ian, um, were, you, were you confronted with having to advise on you know, expelling uh, uh, diplomats from different countries represented in Canada? Um, is, is this something that you experienced when you were in Ottawa? Well, I recall an instance where a Chinese diplomat accredited in Vancouver to the Vancouver consulate was uh, caught harassing uh, people in Canada. Uh, he was uh, PNG'd and expelled from Canada before we knew about it. We were told after the fact. When I say that, I mean the Prime Minister and I and the Prime Minister's staff and cabinet were briefed after the fact that, by the way, we got rid of this guy uh, uh, yesterday. We're just telling you uh, this is what took place because hmm. uh, you know we, we couldn't stand having uh, uh, someone uh, uh, harassing people uh, in a criminal manner here in Canada. Uh, it's a violation of uh, the conditions of his diplomatic appointment in Canada. So we revoked it and he's out. Um, that was obviously a very ra so rapid that uh, that the news uh, didn't catch up to the prime minister until after it had all happened. And so in this case, um, I don't know what advice uh, they're getting. As I say, you want to take a moment, given what happened with the two Michaels, uh, and maybe in 2021, you want to be careful about how you react to this that might affect two Canadians being uh, detained um, uh, without cause uh, in China. Of course, they're not the only Canadians who are being detained in China uh, arbitrarily. There are others. If the government's worried about that, I understand that. But, uh, you know, that's a matter of hours.
Ian, wow, thank you. These have just been some terrific insights. Thank you so much for coming on the roundtable today. Again, listeners, that was Ian Brody, professor of political science at the University of Calgary, director of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He previously served as chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Guys, let's just spend a few remaining moments of the show just kicking around what we've heard from Ian. Um, I'm going to come to you first, Sean. I mean, my big takeaway here is that you know, there are systems and processes in place. Um, I like this whole idea that there's a completely separate computer system, literally, that probably logged this document that would have shown who it was shared, printed, read by. It suggests to me, Sean, that there could be another leg to this story come next week as we actually begin to understand who had this document and when and why did they fail to act. Um, I guess the cynic in me thinks, you know, does that come to light of day or would the government invoke the cloak of, you know, national security to prevent uh, a full public disclosure of the type that I believe Ian is absolutely right needs to happen at this point to restore confidence? Yeah, what a great week uh, uh, for Hub Podcasts. We started the week, of course, with MP Michael Chong, an exclusive interview, his first long-form interview after the news of this extraordinary report broke. And we ended the week with uh, Ian Brody, who's one of the most informed people when it comes to the nuts and bolts of intelligence sharing within the government of Canada. And I, I take the same um, view based on our conversation with, with Ian as you do, Rudyard. Um, that is to say, he started his comments by outlining uh, a series of questions um, that um, that these reports have uh, have established uh, in our in our political conversation. Um, but what he, I think, described um, signals that these are answerable questions. You know, that is to say, um, uh, we have the means and the ability um, to uh, to effectively answer. Um, many of the questions that are at the at the heart of this story. And in that sense, it just seems unsustainable for the government to to try to rag the puck. You will increasingly have voices like Ian's and others. Dick Fadden uh, has been in the media the past several days um, um, outlining the, you know, in the, um, the, the process behind the curtain. And in that sense, I think if the government tries to stonewall, um, uh, it's going to it's going to find a lot of uh, pushback. Um, and so I, I guess that's a very long way of saying uh, for those of you who thought this story was going to be one week, uh, I think it will, it will be uh, possibly even more explosive uh, into next week. Yeah. Stuart, to come to you, uh, just thinking about this, you know, we're going to have this, the situation of the fate of this diplomat, you know, hanging over the government in the coming days. Again, if there's prolonged inaction on that. I think that is a whole other debate that could kick off. But I guess I go back to just wondering, Stuart, about what happens to a government when there's so clearly this breach between their premier national security agency and the prime minister's office. Um, you know, this has been a crazy week, but it is it fits into a series of, of stories and events you know, that we now go know go back through years. It's not just these leaks. It is the Winnipeg lab and all the efforts the government did to suppress information about why a PRC military officer had access to that virology lab 
Um, it goes to the Trudeau Foundation. I mean, you just put this all together, and it seems to me, as Ian said, that you know this is hardly a one-off. It seems to be part of a, a pattern. Um, and I guess I just continue to struggle with understanding why the government is acting, and this prime minister to a certain extent, is acting in ways that are so demonstrably not in his interest. His interest is to expel this diplomat. His interest is to uh, be perceived of as reigning in Chinese interference, either allegedly within his party or within the country. This would help him with domestic politics. Arguably, I think it probably would make the Americans feel a little better about what's happening north of the border. How do you explain, Stuart, just this as a set of behaviors here entrenched now over years that clearly have frustrated and enraged some officers inside CSIS and a, and a prime minister and a PMO that is just acting contrary to what it could or should do to make the politics of this uh, something other than the train wreck that it currently looks like. Yeah, we, I mean, we have been talking about the seeming disarray, you know, that there's something going on with this liberal government, maybe they're running out of steam or something. But I would even say that like this week surprised me. I was shocked on Wednesday when the prime minister came out and said what he said about CSIS. And then it was a direct contradiction the next day, because as Ian said, you know, one of the things a politician learns pretty quickly is how to waffle and how to dance around something that they don't totally know. So um, that is a sign of real dysfunction that they are just falling on their face like that. And um, one of the things that I've been looking into, I've got a story that just went live on the hub right now. It'll be in our Monday newsletter. It's about the Australia model, which has been touted a lot, um, you know, bringing in the foreign agent registry and other measures. I The scandal that provoked that compared to this seemed pretty piddly to me. Like it just was a, a donation by a senator in Australia. Uh, and then it started all this kind of policy movement. So if this doesn't get you moving on these things, the government says it's looking into the foreign agent registry. Um, you know, we'll see how that goes. But the sluggishness all week, the disarray, I, I think there's an argument that maybe, you know, there is dysfunction in the PMO, but I think you're right. Like it just seems to me to be almost a temperamental thing there's a dispositional problem here where they don't want to get into a fight with China. Um, and I, I couldn't even venture a guess as to why at this point. Well, let, well let's, let, let, let's just at the end of the show, let's go there, Sean. I mean, what the heck? Like, why not? Like, why not do a bunch of things right now? Or the, why not have done a bunch of things over the last number of years as you saw this threat emerge, as it was reported up to you by your intelligence service? Arguably, Yes, during the two Michaels phase and their imprisonment, you would have had to act carefully. But this report, what we know about what happened to Michael Chong, there was lots of opportunity after the two Michaels came back to address this. It wasn't done. And we know a bunch of other concerns that have festered in the security service were not addressed. Why, Sean? Like, it just seems like a repeated own goal over and over and over again and I just, I don't know what, I don't know what's out there. Like I, there's a known unknown. <laughs> it's frustrating the heck out of me. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> I, I wish I did. Um, because uh, this past week is, has already made my end of year 2022 uh, hub 
uh, article obsolete. I argued in the final piece of 2022 that the Indo-Pacific strategy that the Trudeau government outlined near the end of the year represented a, a genuine change in the way that the government was conceptualizing Canada's place in the world and its relationship with China. It used in that document language describing China and its uh, geopolitical threat as a geopolitical threat in a way that um, not only had, had this government not thought and talked about it, but frankly, governments for successive years. Uh, and when push comes to shove, guys, when confronted with uh, uh, clear evidence uh, that uh, Chinese officials on Canadian soil were targeting a Canadian member of parliament, uh, the government, as you said, Rudyard, to Ian, uh, started talking about economic interests and all of these other things, uh, which for all intents and purposes shows that, that what was articulated in a Pacific strategy um, is absolutely meaningless. Um, and the dissonance between that document and what it's saying in the past week, uh, I think raises important questions about the government's serious in terms seriousness in terms of uh, protecting and advancing Canada's national interests. Yeah, I mean, my only thoughts here, and again, I'm the cynic of the three of us, <laughs> Bradley. I guess I'm older, um, been around a bit longer. Um, I just, I, I worry about these things just, you know, it's, it's the old truism, follow the money. Uh, there are powerful business interests in this country that have spent decades creating uh, insurance and banking and other businesses in China. Um, I wonder, I wonder if those businesses have been warned if those businesses have uh, a sense that those assets, those Chinese assets could become stranded. And if you look at the people who over the last seven years have hung around this government, um, all again, nothing to say about them as public servants or publicly spirited people, but people that had a very friendly view of China through a business lens, um, John McCallum, the former ambassador, Dominic Barton, Peter Harder. Um, again, nothing to say about them personally, but people who believe that, that Canada needed, in a sense, a third option and that China was that third option. And that view conveniently aligned with the business interests of some very powerful interests in this country. And I wonder at the end of the day, those people embedded in the elites of the Liberal Party, feeding back and representing business interests that are not unimportant, especially in Quebec. I don't know. Makes me wonder, guys, uh, if that's where a lot of this reluctance stems from. I think, I think there's something to that, that this government came to power, um, committed to uh, expanding Canada's relationship with China, it persisted in that view much longer um, than allies in peer jurisdictions all around the world. Uh, you'll recall, for instance, we was one of the last to finally uh, ban Huawei equipment. And as I said, I I was prepared to give the benefit the government the benefit of the doubt um, that the Indo-Pacific strategy represented something of a change. And I think Melanie Jolie's um, I'll, I'll be blunt about it. Shameful testimony before a parliamentary committee uh, this week where she speculated openly about trading off our economic interests uh, for permitting a bit of political interference in Canada's democracy, um, you know, is a sign that that the this is still the old view and the Indo-Pacific strategy 
uh, and the kind of hawkishness that it described is not, you know, it may be what's on paper, but it's not what animates and motivates this this government. Yeah, it's a long list. It's the Winnipeg lab, as you say, it's Huawei. It's the allegations around Handong. It's the absolute meltdown of the Trudeau Foundation. And now, you know, it's MP Michael Chong um, and, you know, his family in Hong Kong who, you know, may have been the subject of an intimidation campaign. I don't know, guys. It's just that's a lot of freight, a lot of freight to carry. Well, well, look, we're going to be on this all next week. As Stuart mentioned, he's got a piece coming out Monday, um, looking at the Australian example, how they've tried to address this. The hub is all about solutions. Um, and we've got some for addressing foreign interference. Uh, we'll continue to cover this. Thank you for your time and attention uh, for this podcast, for the hub and what we're all about. And uh, guys, we'll see you next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.